Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Now, you might notice that this episode's coming out on a Tuesday rather than a Saturday, and that's because I got food poisoning, and it doesn't do you great with your vocal cords or your throat when you're throwing up a lot. But I'm all better now and ready to get this out, and that's why it's coming out on Tuesday. There still will be the normal episode on Saturday, though. So, we'll begin by saying if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I do this podcast full-time, along with my other podcast, From John to Justin. And it's a lot of work. And every dollar you give helps keep it all going. And if you like, you can also find my history videos on my YouTube channel, just go to youtube.com slash C slash Canadian History X. EHX, of course. If you like, you can email me at Craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. When Canadians look at the war history of the country in the 20th century, there's a focus on the First World War, Second World War, and Korea. Mixed in between the First and Second World War, though, was another war, one that Canada did not officially participate in, but which many Canadians did on their own free will. It was the Spanish Civil War of the late 1930s, and it involved 1,500 to 1,700 Canadians traveling to Europe to fight against the fascists. Only about 1,000 would return home to their families, and when they did, they were often not met with parades, but with anger, harassment, and open hostility from the Canadian government. Today, I'm looking at the Canadians who fought in the Spanish Civil War. And at the end of the episode, I will also have my interview with Janet Higgins, who put together the experiences of her father, Jim Higgins, who fought in the Spanish Civil War in the book Fighting for Democracy. The Spanish Civil War is an expansive topic that other podcasts cover a lot better than I will, and this episode isn't so much about the war itself, but the Canadian involvement in it. As such, I'll be glossing over a lot for the conflict that saw the deaths of half a million people and is considered the first theatre of the Second World War. The war was fought from 1936 to 1939 between the Republicans who were loyal to the Popular Front government of the Second Spanish Republic in alliance with communists and anarchists, and the nationalists who led the insurrection against the government made up of a collection of monarchists, conservatives, and traditionalists in a military group led by General Francisco Franco. The nationalists were aided with soldiers, air support, and munitions from Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, while the Republican side was supported by the Soviet Union and Mexico. The other Western powers of France, the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States did not get involved, and while they continued to recognize the Republican government, they had a policy of non-intervention. Even with that stance of non-intervention, tens of thousands of citizens from non-interventionist countries still went to Spain to fight, including from Canada. In fact, the Spanish Civil War was such a non-issue for the Canadian government that it's barely mentioned in the diaries of Prime Minister William Lyne Mackenzie King, except for a passing reference. On August 21, 1936, a month after the war started, he simply states, quote, I got news of day over radio, was incidents in Spain, end quote. In the end, the Nationalists would win the war, which ended in early 1939, just before the Second World War began, and Franco would rule Spain until his death in November of 1975. The Canadians who left the country to fight were mostly immigrants who had been in Canada for several years, but felt the urge to fight against fascism after seeing its rise in Germany. What first interested you about the, the, the Spanish Civil War? Well, the main thing was the, the terrible fear of fascism taking over Spain, I, I guess. Uh, 
the need for people to go there and help in, a, in an actual uh, physical mm -hmm. <laughs> capacity. And this being an opportunity for, for a real purpose in life. I didn't expect to come back uh, uh, when I made the decision, but uh, it seemed worthwhile. And uh, if anything, if it ended here, it was a worthwhile thing I had done. You mean you, mean you, you signed up to go to Spain uh, assuming that this was going to be the, the great final burst of your... Of all well, your I didn't know. I certainly didn't expect in this kind of a war that I, uh, I would return whole. I, I mean, I could have returned crippled, but uh, I didn't have any, any notions that it was easy. I knew inevitably that if the Spanish Republic was defeated, that Canada would be at war. And I said that, that exactly those words to my sister before I left that inevitably her husband would be expected to be taken in World War II within one year yeah. of the defeat of the Republic, if they were defeated. Well, you were only out by secondly, two years. Secondly, the richest man in Canada owned public utilities in Spain. And there was word that he had given a personal check to Franco for $1 million. Who was that? And I felt that I could give my life mm -hmm. if he could give his million. Mm -hmm. Who was that? Sir Herbert Holt. Now. Ross, how about you? Well, I was an anti-fascist, anti-Nazi. I was very disturbed, had been for a number of years with what was going on in Nazi Germany. And it was perfectly clear that if the Nazis could attack a democratically elected government, like the Republican government of Spain was, then they would strengthen themselves and inevitably they would move further and, as Wally said, move on to World War II. These initial soldiers went over at their own cost to fight and they were not organized into a specific Canadian unit, and that would come later. Instead, they were put into units with fellow countrymen. For example, someone from Finland or Sweden would be put in with a Finnish or Swedish unit at first. These units were all part of one of five international brigades, which was made up of thousands of soldiers who came from other countries to fight. In 1937, the Canadian government would begin to put things in place to prevent men from leaving the country to fight in Spain. The most prominent of these was the Foreign Enlistment Act. Under the Act, participation of any Canadian volunteer in Spain was outlawed and considered a defiant act against the Canadian state. By the time the bill came in, 500 men had already gone overseas, but it did not stop the tide of volunteers who wanted to fight. By the end of the conflict, another 1,200 men, including three women, would have left Canada to fight. The first Canadians would join up with the Abraham Lincoln Battalion in February of 1937. In the summer of 1937, which was the time of the highest enlistment, a special battalion would be created. The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion was formed under the names of the leaders of the Upper and Lower Canada rebellions that occurred 100 years previous, and it represented a shared identity for those fighting. Ironically, in honoring William Lyme Mackenzie King in the name of the battalion, he was the grandfather of William Lyme Mackenzie King, the Prime Minister of Canada at the time of the Spanish Civil War. Those volunteers who joined the battalion included everyone from teachers and waiters to doctors and laborers. Typical volunteers fell into two categories, those who were born in Canada and those who came to Canada. The immigrants to Canada tended to be older and remembered the upheavals in their own countries from past decades. Most of the volunteers were also born between 1895 and 1910, making them too young to fight in the First World War, and they were coming to age as adults in the Great Depression. Many were supporters of communism as well, and it was estimated that 70% of the Canadian members of the unit were members of the Communist Party. Thomas Beckett, who lived in Moose Jaw, wrote a letter home after he left, stating, quote, You no doubt know why I'm here. It is because I am what you do not want me to be, a communist. Even if I had no political beliefs and was not a communist, my dislike of cruelty, of unnecessary suffering, brutality, greed, and tyranny would lead me to do the same thing, end quote. Beckett, unfortunately, would be one of the first Canadians to die in the war. The first few months of the battalion's existence were spent training and organizing, which put them ahead of other battalions that Canadians were part of and that had little training. At first, there were more Americans than Canadians in the battalion, by about three to one. But as more Canadian volunteers joined, that ratio would drop. One person who joined the unit was Jean Watts, who became the only woman to join the battalion. In order to get over to Spain, those who had a connection to the Communist Party of Canada simply needed to contact the party and the rest of the work would be taken care of. That doesn't mean there wasn't a risk. 
the RCMP was constantly monitoring those who were volunteering to serve in Spain. And the RCMP also had a large group of informants who allowed them to keep tabs on anyone that might want to leave Canada. At the time, there was no legal recourse to pursue any action against those men who enlisted, and all the RCMP could do was monitor volunteers and allow them to go overseas. Once the Communist Party was contacted, they would obtain a passport, and often the men had to journey across Canada and even through the United States to get to the Atlantic coast in order to make the journey organized by the Communist Party. For those in Quebec and eastern Ontario, they typically just had to get on a steamer to Europe, and the journey was much easier. The Mac Paps, as they were called, would arrive in Spain in September of 1937, and they then spent the next two weeks patrolling quiet areas before they were moved up to the front. The first battle for the Mac Paps would be at Fuente de Ebro, which was commanded by the American Robert Thompson. The attack began on October 13, 1937, but things quickly went awry. The planned aerial bombardment was much smaller than expected, and added into the issues was the fact that the tanks were supposed to move ahead as soon as the planes left, but there was no sign of the tanks for 90 minutes, and this allowed the Nationalists to regroup in the trenches that had just been bombed. When the tanks did arrive, they crushed through the parapets, accidentally fired on the Mac Paps as they passed, and crushed two soldiers in the process. The tanks then roared ahead at 30 kilometers per hour, too fast for the men to keep up with. The tanks were then hit with anti-tank fire and destroyed. The Mac Paps were then fired upon and they had to die for cover in a ridge. By the afternoon of that day, the battle was over and the Canadians had lost 60 men with 200 wounded. Our lines were broken and uh, I was taken pretty well in the first break. I was captured very quickly. They had me. I mean, I, I, I could do anything, I had hands up and so on. And uh, they got the firing squad uh, out in front of us and uh, placed us against one of their stone walls there, and, uh, and this was it. We're already singing, because uh, it was moments. They started calling out the orders, they were lining up. They didn't bandage our eyes or put anything in front of our eyes. And um, your whole life goes before you in, in split seconds. That, uh, what a shame to, to end it so, so young. Some kind of a general came through with um, with motorcyclists in front and behind with their plumed hats. It was one of these black plume divisions or something. And stopped there, called the uh, sergeant of the guard or whatever he was, who was uh, going to do the, the firing, came over, tried to question us a little bit. Okay, where are you from? How many troops? And so on. Uh, didn't get very far. And we were ordered to be moved back. And uh, it was just the, uh, our luck to not get it there. In November of 1937, the battalion was commanded by Canadian commander Edward Cecil Smith. Cecil Smith had been a member of the Communist Party of Canada and was a former journalist and militiaman, and he would command the battalion for most of its existence during the war. Through 1938, the Mac Paps had participated in several battles, including the Battle of Terrell and the Aragon Offensive. On January 14 to 15, 1938, the Mac Paps were ordered to the city of Terrell to defend it from the Nationalists. On January 17th, the Nationalists struck with 60,000 troops, but this time, due to the Canadian, Spanish, and British troops, the Nationalists were put back with heavy casualties. This would not be the only attack, but the Canadians would continue to repulse the Nationalists, but due to overwhelming numbers, things were getting dire for the Canadians. Commander Lionel Edwards would say, quote, the end had to come. Mechanized might and overpowering numbers finally told. Our machine guns were all blown to pieces. We were under fire from nearly every side and no more reinforcements could reach us as the hill to our right had been taken. There was only a handful of us left and our only arms were rifles. End quote. The Canadians left the line on February 3rd and headed to Valencia to recover. I had no training at all when I first went to the front, but uh, after having been wounded at the front on the first day in battle, Mm. Uh, coming out of convalescence, I received one month's training before returning to the front. Now? With that one month's training, it was considered that I was uh, material and to be a sergeant in the international brigades. Mm. Over the next two months, the Canadians would continue to retreat from the Republicans as the Nationalists continued to press on. This time of war became known as the Retreats. The final battle for the Mac Paps would be at the Battle of Ebro, which was the nationalist victory that essentially broke the back of the Republican forces. 
The battle took place on July 25, 1938, and the Canadians were the first to cross the Ebro River. Edwards would say, quote, The men didn't know the battle order, but it must have been to cross over and go as far as you bloody well could. End quote. The battalions would attack for 10 days, but were unable to take the town of Corbera after having taken the towns of Flix and Asco. The battalion was then ordered to the Mountains of the Moon, which was an area scarred by war, covered with bodies. One man would say, quote, Most of the area was bare rocks. Some hard jack pine and mountain scrub covered the crest had been burned off by bombs and shells. The whole piece was blackened, evil-looking, and stunk chokingly of death since the dead could not be buried. End quote. For the next 10 days, the MacPaps occupied Hill 609 and dealt with constant enemy shelling. And by the end of those 10 days, the MacPaps were at half strength and had lost two company commanders. On September 21, 1938, the Spanish Prime Minister ordered all international brigades withdrawn from the country, and six months later, on March 28, 1939, the war ended. It is said that when the Mac Paps withdrew from the conflict in September of 1938, only 35 men left on their feet. Of the official 1,546 Canadians who fought in Spain, 721 did not make it home. The numbers may differ slightly depending on sources, due to no official records being kept for the number of volunteers who did go over. Now of all the men who served in Spain, none are more famous than Dr. Norman Bethune. Dr. Bethune is going to be getting his own episode in the coming months because he's that interesting of an individual, so I won't be going deep into his life, but it's important to highlight his work in Spain because it changed battlefield medicine forever. Dr. Norman Bethune, who is a distant relative of both Christopher Plummer and Prime Minister Sir John Abbott, was born on March 4, 1890 in Gravenhurst, Ontario. A veteran of the First World War, he would become a doctor, and during the Great Depression, he would help poor Canadians and provide free medical care. A supporter of socialized medicine, he would travel to the Soviet Union in 1935 to view universal health care firsthand. And it was at that time he also became a member of the Communist Party of Canada. In 1936, he went to Spain and arrived in Madrid on November 3, 1936. He was unable to find a place to work as a surgeon, so he came up with the idea of creating a mobile blood transfusion service that allowed him to take donated blood to wounded soldiers on the front line. This was the first system of its kind in the world. Bethune would return to Canada on June 6, 1937, and he embarked on speaking tours to raise money for volunteers for the Spanish Civil War. In his speeches, he would say, quote, I am a doctor, a surgeon. My job is to sustain human life in all its beauty and vigor. I am not a politician, but I went to Spain because the politicians betrayed Spain and tried to drag the rest of us into their betrayal. With varying accents and with varying degrees of hypocrisy, the politicians ruled the democratic Spain must die. It was my belief, as it is now, my conviction, that democratic Spain must live. End quote. In January 1938, Bethune would go to China to help the Chinese communists under Mao Zedong. He would perform emergency battlefield surgery and he trained doctors, nurses, and orderlies, and he would help wounded soldiers on both sides. On October 29, 1939, he cut his middle finger while taking bone fragments out of a soldier's wounded leg. The wound would be reopened during surgery three days later and would become infected, and Dr. Bethune died on November 12, 1939. Chairman Mao would publish In Memory of Norman Bethune, which became required reading in Chinese schools in the 1960s. Today, Bethune is one of the few Westerners in China who has dedicated statues honoring him, and several buildings and universities are named for Bethune in China as well. For the Canadians who served overseas, the work began to get home. Many could not get home because there was no financial help from Canada, and soldiers had to rely on friends and family to collect money to get them home. For many, there was the worry of being arrested upon return to Canada, and some were even arrested in France when they tried to pass through. In January 1939, after the war was over, the Canadian government agreed to let the veterans return to Canada. Upon the return to Canada, the soldiers found that the Canadian government had not forgotten about them, and the prosecution of the Spain veterans would begin under the Foreign Enlistment Act. They were investigated by the RCMP because most of the veterans were affiliated with the Communist Party of Canada. Others could not find any sort of employment and more were refused the chance to serve Canada during the Second World War because of their history. 
That being said, some MACPAF veterans were able to eventually serve in the war. And while the government did not look kindly on the volunteers, most regular Canadians did. On February 5, 1939, 272 men were greeted as heroes by 10,000 people in Toronto as they returned home. Methodist social reformer Salon Blonde would tell the people who gathered there, quote, Canada didn't understand at first what we were doing, but understands now, and as time goes by, you will have more friends, more honour, because you've done one of the most gallant things in history, end quote. The news media was less than enthralled with the men. The Globe and Mail would write, quote, The men returning from Spain are acclaimed as heroes. Many of them deliberately defied the law. We are not aware that the government has even taken the trouble to learn how they were induced to do this. Is this situation simplified by the fact that they fought in a lost cause? At any rate, what is the law for? End quote. Uh, what kind of sympathy are you getting, Wally, from people like the Canadian Legion? And I notice that you're wearing a Legion pin in your lapel. No, the, the problem is with the Canadian Legion that uh, any, any, uh, their attitude is very simple up to this point. That uh, any uh, soldier who fought in the Second World War or in Korea or in the First World War, that they have a place in the Canadian Legion. So far, mm -hmm. they do not accept the fact that the veterans of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion have a position there. And uh, this is unfortunate in many ways. Uh, I think, uh, I'm hoping in time that this can be changed. More recently, Canada has been more inclined to honour and memorialise those who left Canada to fight in Spain. Three monuments have been installed that commemorate the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, and the first was installed on June 1, 1995 in Toronto, and consists of a large boulder transported from a battlefield in Spain. Another monument was unveiled on February 12, 2000 in Victoria, B.C., and on the one commissioned in Ottawa in 2001, the names of all the known volunteers are listed. The first Canadians to fight against fascism finally got some concrete recognition today. The Governor General unveiled a statue in Ottawa that commemorates members of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. They defied the Canadian government in the 1930s to go to Spain and fight for the Loyalist side in the Civil War. Steve Fisher reports. I always wanted to meet you people, and, and, and I'm so proud of you. 87-year-old Maurice Constant was finally the centre of attention today, praised for his role in a distant war. It's glorious we've been waiting for this for 60 years to get some sort of recognition. Constant was one of 1,500 Canadians who went to Spain to fight fascism during the Civil War of the late 1930s. They were volunteers, most of them fighting in a renowned battalion called the Mackenzie Papineau, or MACPAP. Half of all the Canadians there were killed in action. They were fighting against fascism, which was like a rehearsal for the war to come. Now the Governor-General has unveiled a monument to the veterans and acknowledged their early role in the fight against fascism. It is fitting that we recognize now, 65 years later, the historic moment for which these men and women went to fight in a foreign war, a war which was not their own, a war in which Canada was not involved as a nation. In fact, the Canadian government had disapproved of the Canadians fighting on the communist-supported Republican side in the war in Spain. Ever since, Ottawa has refused to recognize the veterans or give them official status. Even this monument was paid for by private donors. Yeah, I found it right there. 92-year-old Arnie Knudsen took note that even on this day, no member of the federal cabinet was on hand for the ceremony. We never say, I, I, I'm a Spanish veteran. We never said that into the last few years. Because, oh, you're one of them reds, eh? You going over there? Yeah. You're coming, this, eh? Now, at least, they have their own national monument. <laughs> Even if there are fewer than a dozen MacPat vets still alive to see it. Steve Fisher, CBC News, Ottawa. And while there are memorials, since Canada was not officially participating in the Spanish Civil War, the Canadians who died in the war are not included in the Books of Remembrance at the Peace Tower on Parliament Hill. As well, on all federal war memorials and in Remembrance Day ceremonies, the veterans are not commemorated. The survivors of the war were also not entitled to veterans' benefits.
And now we're going to go to the interview with Janet Higgins. What led your father, Jim, to decide to, uh, to put down his life story back in the 1970s? We knew nothing about his past. And one of my sisters it was very interested and, and had probed him a lot over the years. Um, and she got us together at Christmas 76 and said, you know, are you with me? Can we all go in and pressure dad at Christmas to, to write his story? And we did. And it worked. And he started writing right away. I, we didn't realize it, but uh, he started writing. He wrote through all of 1977 in pencil on legal size full scout. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, for you kind of reading this life story, uh, was did it give you kind of a unique perspective on your father and, and the life he lived before you were born? Oh, I mean, it changed my perspective. Um, and, and it was a gradual change because a lot of things weren't evident. When I first went through the material, and you know, I started in 2017 with all of you know, this big overflowing box of stuff that he'd left behind and um, which included everything he'd written. Um, I found out he'd written things about the Spanish Civil War in 1939. Um, but it was a bit of a jumble. And so putting it all together and figuring out uh, the narrative, what was the was what was the chronology of this story? And so things gradually became revealed. There were lots of mysteries to solve. Um, and I was able to through research and approaching academics um, in four countries, um, getting it fact-checked by people. Um, I was able to verify most of his story and to understand better because he was quite a modest man. Um, he didn't glorify anything that he mm -hmm. did to the point of being a little too modest. And so the only thing I did with his actual story in the book was to tweak it so that the reader could understand what it was he was talking about. Um, but essentially those are his words in the book and everything I did, all the behind the scenes work is reflected in the notes and in the prologue and epilogue that I wrote. And uh, your father was involved in quite a, quite a bit of important historical moments um yeah when you're when you're going through the book or when you're putting it together was it kind of a surprise to see that he was involved in something like the regina riot which was such a, a kind of a watershed moment in the labor uh, rights unit uh, uh, movement uh, it leads to the downfall of a prime minister eventually so was it kind of interesting to to see that he's involved in some of these major moments in canadian history oh it was quite a Quite a surprise. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there were, there, there's practically, we knew practically nothing that's in that book. I did know that um, he had fought in the Spanish Civil War, but he told us nothing about his life um, during the Great Depression. And we knew nothing. I mean, not even that business. Uh, entirely innocent about you know the chapter he wrote about wild horses when he worked on Manitoba ranches um, so all of this was a revelation to me and it's certainly to get back to your earlier question certainly changed my perspective on who he was what kind of man he was I mean my admiration for him just went up and up and up um, when we look at the uh, Spanish Civil War, it's not something that's generally uh, talked about in Canadian history, but a lot of Canadians did go over and fight uh, in that war. Why do you think it isn't maybe celebrated as much as it could be or that we honour the, the veterans who did serve in it as much as we could? Oh, <laughs> the reason for that is they were uh, left-wingers. And the left is, uh, if, if, if the powers that can be can put the workers down, um, 
and their story doesn't get told, then uh, that that's what will happen. And and with the Spanish Civil War, they were uh, they were all they all had RCMP files pretty well, mm-hmm. um, and they were painted as Reds, whether they were members of the Communist Party or not. Anybody on the left was a Red. And of course, you know, we headed into, by the time I was a kid, um, we had McCarthyism, which had spilled over into the States. So those guys, the, the men, um, and I, there were a few women, women who volunteered from Canada in the Spanish Civil War, um, not at the front, but they were, you know, helping out in other ways, medical units and so on. Um, they were lying low for the most part. They were not seeking attention. They were trying to avoid it. And uh, so it wasn't until 1977 when my father wrote his, most of his memoir was a watershed moment because that's when the MACPAPs, the veterans of the Spanish Civil War, they were members of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, came out of the shadows. They finally... Um, I guess felt comfortable enough to start meeting um, and uh, and to to work on things like um, fighting for pensions and recognition um, and later on uh, uh, memorials in various cities, um, although they weren't involved in the big one that's gone up in Ottawa, there were only a few alive um, when that happened in the uh, in the 90s or 2000, early 2000s. Uh, you'd mentioned that it kind of gave you uh, more admiration for your father and everything, seeing, you know, especially in the Spanish Civil War, what he what he did. Um, was it also at times kind of hard to read some some of the things, just showing how often that he was in danger uh, fighting in that war and how, you know, things could have been very different? Uh, I didn't find it that hard to read. You know, it's interesting. His writing style um, is uh, there's no adornment. These are just straightforward words. There's not a lot of adjectives or adverbs in 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 this book, um, and so you get the. I mean, that piece he wrote about, you know, being confronted by the fascists, and he's alone out there with a machine gun, having run a gauntlet <laughs> of fire, you know, bullets coming at him from all sides. I mean, it's amazing that. He lived through that, um, but it wasn't something that um, uh, uh, upset me or anything. I was emotionally um, uh, affected by his relationship with Jose Diaz, his, his young interpreter, the Spanish boy. And when he had to leave Span- <laughs> Jose, I mean, I, I, I well up whenever I think about it. He was... um, in regards to Jose, uh, it's such a wonderful story that you do have in there about that he does meet this this boy and then years later uh, reconnects with him. Uh, was it kind of a nice little thing to be able to put that in there? Oh, yeah, that that wasn't Jose. Jose oh, Diaz was a fellow machine gunner that he fought with, who was his interpreter during the war and who may have been killed, quite likely was killed um, when the war ended. Um, And uh, the person you're talking about is Manuel Alvarez. And Manuel uh, was a young boy uh, in the Spanish Civil War. He'd been sent to a town named Corbera Debra as a safe place to be. And it turned out to be right in the middle of it was at the front practically um, during the war at that time um, during the Battle of the Ebro in July and August 1938 and the soldiers had all left and my father was left with Jose Diaz's interpreter <laughs> to um, 
check to for wounded civilians around town because the they were still bombing the town even though the the soldiers were long gone like many towns in Spain civilians were bombed and killed um, and so my father was there kind of helping out um, he had a lot of special assignments during that war <laughs> turned out and um, he a bomb hit a water tank and the deluge was sweeping this kid down the hill my father went in um, and pulled him out um, took him to a Red Cross station and, and left him for dead. Um, and he wrote a very short piece about that. And that short piece is what led to Manuel Alvarez finding him. Um, so the Manuel story isn't something he really wrote about. I put the short piece in the mm -hmm. book, you know, as, as his editor, it's in there. But, and I, I included a picture of Manuel that was discovered only a few years ago that had been taken in the cave hospital where he uh, ended up. Um, and, uh, but I wrote about it in the prologue. Um, and uh, so it, it's kind of a, uh, it, it, the story's important because Manuel lived to find my father uh, he'd emigrated to Canada and had vowed that he would find my the person who'd saved his life. All he knew was he was a Canadian. And it's a long story, but because of that short piece my father wrote that he sent to the MACPAP Association at the time, that they were just starting to get together, through a whole series of coincidences, Manuel was able to find his needle in the haystack, so to speak. And that was my father, Jim Higgins. Um, and uh, so they met and reunited, but, and my father did write um, a short piece about their reunion, but uh, that's one of the few things I didn't really include in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's the stories included in other ways, but mm -hmm. most of what he wrote is is in there. Uh, you, mentioned that, uh, you mentioned that your father was kind of a humble man, uh, and so when he returns from the Spanish Civil War, you do write about how you know there was these crowds of people who were cheering them. Um, did he ever give an indication that that was kind of something he wasn't expecting, or? Um, that it wasn't something he enjoyed because like you said, he was just kind of a humble man kind of fighting for what he believed was right. And then to come home and, and have all these people kind of cheering him and others as, as heroes. <laughs> um, well, he certainly never talked to us about it. Uh, the only thing we knew was they'd fought in some obscure war called the Spanish Civil War. He still told us nothing. So um, I think he was, he was surprised, he says, um, he was surprised, he used the word overwhelmed, almost overwhelmed, um, uh, you know, at how many people turned out at Massey Hall, you know, the 10,000 who spilled into the streets at Union Station in Toronto to welcome them home. But they knew, the soldiers knew that they had the support of the Canadian people because Canadians were raising money and uh, sending them care packages. So even though they'd gone against the law, you know, the Foreign Enlistment Act was enacted by the government to prevent them from volunteering in Spain. They had uh, public support, just not government support. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, uh, what can somebody learn from your father's life and uh, how he led his life and the things that he was involved in? Wow, okay. Anything I learned from him came uh, through his example. I think the words you sh should just were not in his vocabulary. Um, so there was no proselytizing, but I grew up having just somehow absorbed a lot of his values that were just enhanced and sharpened um, when I went through this process of bringing the book out. Um, so 
I think that's one thing, you know, leading by example, <laughs> it's a pretty admirable thing to do. Um, and I know that he couldn't, I, there's a little note to that effect uh, that again is not in the book anywhere, but I found it, you know, scribbled somewhere. He couldn't be who he really was because of those, you know, the effect of McCarthyism. Um, and he had a family to protect. Um, and he did. I mean, that's why we heard nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a shock to me to find out from his RCMP file, because I figured out he must have had one after I read all this, all his <laughs> stories. And I requisitioned his RCMP file. And it was a shock to me that we were he, not we. Well, <laughs> he was surveilled monthly when I was growing up in Peterborough, Ontario. My mild-mannered, gentle father, who worked hard, renovated a house, had a garden, worked overtime, and you know, did all these things. They surveilled him monthly all through the 1950s. Um, he knew that. He would have known that. They would have been mm -hmm. talking to neighbors and his buddies at work. But I think that's why he couldn't say anything to us. So we learned not, he, he, you know, so all those scenes, even the, the nice scenes of uh, the huge welcome at Union Station and so on, he never mentioned any of that to us. The and, good, uh, not the good, nor the bad. <laughs> not the good, nor the bad. <laughs> um, so your father writes his story in the late 1970s. He passes in 1982. Um, what was the process for you to to take those stories and eventually put them together into a book and uh, release it, uh, you know, just recently. Yeah, it took a long time, didn't it? Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> well, you know, life gets in the way. That's part of it. Um, and <clears throat> when Manuel wrote his book, uh, because he did write a book called The Tall Soldier, My 40-Year Search for the Man Who Saved My Life, and it was published in 1980, um, it happened all very quickly. And um, so there was more publicity at that time, publicity when they reunited in 78, publicity in 1980. And there were, you know, media stories everywhere, internationally. And um, so, um, you know, I began to get a, a sense then of what was, what might, his story might be but I still hadn't read anything. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a jumble. I have <laughs> really, <laughs> uh, and so I, um, um, Manuel's book got a review in the Globe and Mail and it ended with something like, you know, but what about Jimmy Higgins? Why did he go to Spain? Heroes deserve histories too. So that was always in the back of my head, but I knew that I had this big overflowing box of all sorts of material and that whatever was going to happen was going to take a lot of time. I had that mm -hmm. sense. And so I had to get everything out of the way before I tackled it because I, you know, it was full time for three years to bring that book out fighting for democracy. Um, just because of all the, the research and the, um, the documentation that I had to do, I was very, very adamant that if he told a story, I wanted it documented somehow, you know, mm -hmm. because otherwise someone might think, oh, this is too incredible, yeah. you know? And I knew my father as an honest man, so I knew that he wasn't embellishing things. But I thought, this is just such an incredible story. I need to document it. And, you know, it took that long to do it. I mean, his RCMP file was invaluable. <laughs> because, you know, he was, he was put in their radical files in 1935. So I had a lot of documentation for anything he wrote about what happened after, in 1935 and after. And uh, what do you hope people get out of reading the book? Uh, what do you hope they discover? Or what do you hope that inspires the, them in their life? Well, I think 
it, it, the first thing people will learn is a bit of their history. Um, mm -hmm. Canadian 1930s history is pretty well encapsulated in that book. Um, he, he, as you said, he lived all the, he wrote about all the major events and others that weren't so major that gives you a real sense of what it was like in the 1930s. Now, granted, from one person's point of view, but someone who was very interested in people and who got their stories. So, you know, he he's put other people's stories into this narrative as well in order to illustrate something he wanted to illustrate. Um, and um, so it's a piece of history, but and I've already been told by people who've read the book, it's an inspiration for people on the front lines today who are seeking social justice. He really is an inspiration. And that's because other people have told me that, but he inspires me as well. I mean, I have um, been inspired to look at the world differently because of what he wrote by his example and through you know, the, the stories that he wrote, what he lived through. Absolutely. And like I said, it was a, it was a really great book. Um, I was familiar with the Regina riot. It was something that I'd covered on my podcast, but he gave a, a, a good perspective that you don't often see. You usually only get the perspective of either the police or like somebody who was like severely injured in it, or usually the newspapers, which is, especially back then was pretty skewed <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> against the, uh, uh, the people in the riot, uh, generally at least. Well, not so, I don't know. Um, maybe some of the Eastern papers. <laughs> I was reading the, uh, <laughs> I was reading the, uh, the Regina leader post in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. And, um, you know, and there was a huge uh, uh, inquiry into the Regina riot. Uh, with, within a year, this inquiry was set up and that was reported extensively in those mm -hmm. papers. And it was good reporting. It was good reporting. Well, it, it's a good newspaper. I used to work at it, so I'm biased ah, for that one. <laughs> well, that's what I found. I thought, my God, these they had um, access, you know, in this in Saskatoon, which would have mm -hmm. been his home in Canada, which I hadn't realized. Um, uh, he'd he'd left because of RCMP surveillance uh, harassment. Um, I. Um, I thought, wow, they had access to, to world news, uh, the two front pages, the front page and then the second page of the daily newspaper was loaded with information about what was going on with the world. I mean, they, I think the Star Phoenix had seven newswires or something that it subscribed mm -hmm. to. So they, and I think it would have been a better look at the news than we often have today where we're now we're in our little silos, you know, <laughs> <laughs> depending on our leanings. <laughs> yeah, it would really light up Twitter for sure. Um, where, where can people find the book? Uh, where can they uh, learn about, you know, find you or if they want to buy the book or anything like that, uh, all the places they can go. Well, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, now, bookstores would um, order it in, um, but um, you know, in, include. I like to encourage independent bookstores, and um, you know, our Canadian uh, uh, bookselling uh, network. Um, but it's available in all those other usual places <laughs> like Amazon um, and uh, in, in worldwide. I mean, there probably, there've been quite a few books sold in Britain and Spain oh, um, nice. because Canadian, yeah, they're much more aware over there. Mm -hmm. um, and so the interest is there. Whereas in Canada, it's, it's having to build the interest and um, getting people to, to consider uh, taking a look at the book, uh, which I think is, is well worthwhile, even for people whose political leanings aren't the same as my dad's. Um, I've had feedback from people like that. So yeah, wherever, wherever you'd like to buy books, then I'm available, um, uh, JeanetteHiggins.com is the website. Uh, <laughs> And I don't sell the book on the website, but um, there I have a blog there, and there's a lot of background on, you know, everything that I 
uh, you know, went through as I was coming up to production uh, and publishing of the book. Um, and now, I mean, my next blog post is going to be about Captain Medina. I had had written about him. I knew nothing about him. I just knew my he was the officer that my father was closest to. He was a Spaniard. And um, I've since learned, the, since the book came out, I've learned that um, Jose Medina, um, well, I, I, I got information from archives in Valencia, which, which are in the notes, but I've got a picture now of Jose Medina. Someone posted it in one of the groups I'm in, you know, social media has been wonderful. Mm-hmm. And with a big label on it, Jose Medina, and it, it exactly what my father said, uh, you know, that Jose Medina was head of intelligence for the brigade um, at, during the Battle of the Ebro. And there they are in the cave headquarters of the 15th International Brigade, four officers, including Jose Medina. So I'm going to do a blog post about that, and I'm excited about that. So it continues. I hope you enjoyed that episode of my look at the Canadians in the Spanish Civil War. Next week, not next week, but Saturday, we're looking at when Prince Edward Island had several decades of prohibition. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Valor Canada, CBC, the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, Wikipedia, Canadian Encyclopedia, The National Interest, Read Passage, and Great Canadian Speeches. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.